folks. Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and you are listening to Overtime, the second half of the program uh, where we go a little bit more into some national stuff, some less serious stuff, uh, some more diving deeper into strategy discussions and stuff like that. And here's a story that I've been wanting to put in the main show for a while. Um, we just haven't been able to get to it. And so, but but it, it, it is a story that I want to – it is something that I want to talk about. And I figure um, that next week is going to be a pretty packed local show as well. So I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and get this out there. Um, because it's important, and, and it's important and, – and I want to highlight how – Right-wing media is totally, um, just totally hypocritical in the way that they present these things. And so, the as we all know, Roe v. Wade has been overturned, uh, criminalizing abortion in the state of Alabama uh, because of our trigger law, making it now the policy of the state that a minority of our citizens get to enforce their religious views on the bodies of all citizens, even up to the point of mandating at the point of a gun, as small government weirdos like to say, that a child carry the pregnancy of their father's rape to term. That's how far they're willing to go to push their religious beliefs on the rest of us. Um, that's the policy. That is the official policy of the state of Alabama. And as politicians have been pressed on this, uh, they have, uh, L- Lieutenant Governor Will Ainsworth has said he supports the law that is on the books. The sponsor of the original legislation said that she's, quote, just listening right now. Others have said they'll take a second look. But what's going to happen is they're not going to revise it. There is no way because um, they would get eaten alive by the insane theocrats that make up a powerful portion of their base, but still a minority of Alabama. Um and, and just think about what that means about who is running the party, the Republican Party, that to loosen up the law just that you have a, a symbolic except, uh, uh, exception for rape and incest, that just that you would be thrown to the wolves and people are scared to do it. You know, I mean, if they weren't scared to do it, then people would be saying, oh, yeah, well, obviously we're going to change this law now that it's actually in effect. But the the reason that they're not saying that, the reason that they are either saying I support the law as it is or I'm I'm just I'm just listening or we need to take a second look at it is because they're scared. They are scared that if they say I don't think a 10 year old should have to carry their uncle's rape pregnancy to term that they would get primaried by somebody even more crazy. That's why. That's the politics that are at play here. So one final line of defense, though, that the state of Alabama has, that the citizens of the state of Alabama has, is electing district attorneys that will refuse to prosecute and enforce this tyrannical law which is the entire reason that district attorneys are elected, right? I mean, it gives citizens discretion over enforcement priorities. 
Of course, that defense is not foolproof. A state attorney general could pick up where a DA leaves the case on the ground. Uh, I, I, I believe that's the case. But nevertheless, that's the purpose of a district attorney. Otherwise, district attorneys would simply be unelected civil service positions. You know, I mean, a, a social security agency uh, uh, computer worker, they don't have discretion over enforcement priorities. And thus, they're not elected. They're just civil service positions. And they just do the law as it's written. But district attorneys are elected so that we can have a say over how our laws are enforced. And that is exactly what Jefferson County District Attorney Danny Carr has rightfully pledged he would do and what the Mobile County District Attorney Moshe Donald has hinted at. And this has sent some theocrats into a tizzy. And instead of arguing against this position and trying to get a theocrat district attorney into these positions that will prosecute, according to the law, a 12-year-old child who doesn't want to carry her uncle's rape pregnancy to term, they're just lying to you. They're just lying to you. Matt Clark wrote for propaganda outlet 1819 News, who interviewed a flat-earth pro-military coup candidate for governor, without mentioning that, who right before the crypto crash where working people who were scammed into putting their putting inordinate sums of money into Bitcoin lost thousands of dollars, 50, up, uh, upwards of 50% of the value that they invested. Right before that, they allowed a scam artist and CEO or something <laughs> of Crypto Y'all, which is a southern crypto education nonprofit, to try to get gullible folks to buy in so he could make a profit. That's who 1819 News is. Um, Matt Clark, and it's one more thing. Where do they find these people? Matt Clark. Who the hell is this guy? Matt Clark. I, I know that the people that fund these places, like 1819 News, have basically unlimited resources. But you would think they would want to diversify s- somehow instead of hiring dozens of random conservative white guys to say the same thing in columns and on radio microphones over and over and over and over. And I'm not talking about diversity in terms of, you know, black or white or gay or shit. Like, I'm talking about media diversity because, you know, you would just think that there would be a different, you know, the, 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 the position of angry conservative guy on the radio and angry conservative guy in an opinion column in the state of Alabama is well covered. Uh, the bases are covered. Let's try something else. Is That's all I'm saying. Anyways, Matt Clark had this to say in Propaganda Out- Outlet 1819 News. Quote, district attorneys literally have one job, protecting innocent people by prosecuting criminals. As the popular saying goes, you had one job. Seriously, it's what you were elected to do. So what's the problem? Um, (laughs) Now, he does make one concession to reality. He said it is well settled that prosecutors do have some discretion on how they handle cases, and they can even decline to prosecute people sometimes. And so there you go. That's the whole thing. And so why does the article not end? Well, This is why it doesn't end. He crafts a very narrow view of what discretion 
district attorneys have. Quote, there are two factors that go into a legitimate decision. Who's describing, who is defining legitimate here? There are two factors that go into a legitimate decision by a prosecutor not to prosecute. First, if the law is unclear, the prosecutor necessarily has to use his discretion on how to proceed. That leaves one other factor that really gets to the heart of the matter. A prosecutor can decline to prosecute when doing so would be fundamentally unjust. And now, I don't know where he gets these two restrictions on the discretion. I don't know where he's pulling this from. If this is something that's written in his Bible or something that is actually in the Alabama code. But let's take them at face value and just say that these are legitimate barriers on the use of discretion by district attorneys. It's obviously fundamentally unjust, and this is the view of the district attorney, it is fundamentally unjust to impose the religious views of a minority, even if it's a majority, but it is a minority of people, on others, which is exactly what the revocation of abortion rights does, and which he cannot even hide in his argument for this position. He cannot hide that this is religiously motivated. Quote, from his article, God has told us in writing, you shall not murder. It is such an obvious truth that civilizations across the globe for millennia have all been able to agree that, a, that murder is wrong. There is nothing more unjust than the mass murder of innocent people, which is exactly what Carr wants to protect. He can, end quote. He cannot argue for the right to abortion to be stripped from people without his religion. Because that's the crux of the thing. That is the crux of the thing. There is no legitimate... There's there's nothing legitimate that you can say to support forcing birth on people without your religion. That's all it is. And it doesn't matter what your religion says. You can't impose that on other people. Well, you can. It's well, just that you right. shouldn't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't, and, and it's it, it's a shame that we're moving backwards in that respect. Very, very bad. Very bad. Uh, but, you know, on the discretion, like this, this exposes the lie, right? You, listener, you, viewer, should call up. Here's the challenge that proves his lie. Call up your local district attorney and ask them how much time and money is dedicated to combating wage theft. Ask him that. Ask Matt Clark that. Ask him how much he thinks his district attorney, how much money is being allotted to combating wage theft. Because we know here on this show that actually much more money is stolen from workers via wage theft than all other property crime combined. Look it up. And yet, and yet most district attorneys including, I would hazard a guess, Danny Carr, most district attorneys dedicate zero dollars, zero, to solving this massive criminal redistribution of wealth from working people to the rich. And here's, here's just some numbers for you from the Economic Policy Institute uh, showing that wage theft is a much bigger problem than robbery. It's roughly triple the amount. Yeah, I've got, roughly, I've got a graphic up. Pull that up. Well, uh, graphic's not, not up 
for some reason. Uh, oh, so no. I was kind of going over it a little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, according to the Economic Policy Institute, now this is from a few years ago. Uh, so I'm sure the data has changed a little bit, but probably only gotten worse, I would imagine. Right. Uh, but there was about $933 million in wage theft compared to about $341 million in robberies. So, again, we're talking about three times as much money is stolen via wage theft than your run-of-the-mill robberies uh, that folks, mm-hmm. you know, want you to panic over. Right. Exactly. Exactly. If district attorneys were really meant to be automatons, then they would be spending actually more resources fighting wage theft than any other property crime. Wage theft under his definitions. Wage theft is totally clear in the law. Workers are owed what they are promised, and it is not unjust to enforce that law. Nobody would argue that it is unclear whether or not workers are owed what they are promised. And nobody would argue that it is unjust, I mean, at least not in public, I don't think. (laughs) Nobody would argue that it is unjust to enforce that law that says workers are owed what they are promised. And yet, district attorneys never, ever, ever do that. And Matthew, from 1819 News, is not writing wailing editorials about this. Because his chief concern is not, it is not, a neutral enforcement of the law. He could care less about that. He could care less. If such a thing even exists. Right, right. He could care less about that. His chief concern is the enforcement of his particular religious views on the rest of us with our tax dollars. That's what he cares about. That's what he wants. Right. And I I think that's really the gist of a lot of contemporary right-wing ideology is to finance private ideology via public taxes. Right. Like the public does not matter except for as a means to profit and to mm-hmm. instill their own private ideas. Um, you know, public institutions are there to be stripped down, sold off for parts, privatized, outsourced. Uh, but you're, we'll take your tax dollars. Right. We'll take your tax dollars. We'll, we'll uh, give more money to the police. We'll use your funds to enforce our narrow ideologies on the rest of us. Right. Uh, Something a little bit more fun, though, is that last week there was a conference held by uh, one of the myriad right-wing social media things that are trying to duplicate Facebook and Twitter, but instead for uh, right-wingers, presumably so that they can say slurs. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like that's that's my thing. Like, you guys are, the right-wing already dominates Facebook. Right. And it is quite prevalent on all the other social media channels. Uh, I mean, if you look at the stats, people like Tucker Carlson and, and all the Fox News weirdos and Newsmax weirdos tend to be like the top 10 post mm-hmm. nearly every day on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and it that kind of reflects the, the demographics in terms of age uh, right. and who uses Facebook. So, yeah, I mean, 
I know you were just joking, but honestly, that seems to be the real motivation here. Oh, no, it's no. The, I mean, I wasn't joking. I think that is the primary motivation right. for, for they, these places like Parlor and Gab and Mines. just want to be able to say slurs yeah, without right. consequence. Uh, so Mines is one of these myriad right-wing social media things. They held a conference last weekend, and one of the panels was on media manipulation. And the panelists were a very strange group of people to be talking about this. You had Tulsi Gabbard. James O'Keefe. Is that the Veritas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. What a creep. Tim Poole and Ben Burgess. Um, So very, very eclectic panel. This and uh, now I'm not too interested in the main subject of the panel, uh, but over the course of the conversation, unions come up, and the clear takeaway is surprise, surprise that Tim Pool uh, does not understand unions. Um, and unfortunately, though, even Ben Burgess, I think he kind of perpetuates a view of unions and unionism that is not the most helpful, even if his intentions are good. So, uh, what started the conversation is a dispute that Ben has with James O'Keefe. If you want to learn more about that, you can go watch the full panel. It is, um, if nothing else entertaining. (laughs) But Ben prefaces a discussion about the dispute with a defense of unions based around free speech, uh, which I think is good. Um, And, uh, you know, because clearly the real free speech issue in this country is in the workplace and it's not on Twitter. Right. Um, And and, but I think that listeners to the program will hear the issue that that I've got when you come to it. Uh, But before we get to that, let's play the clip, uh, this first clip from Ben. We live in, despite being a wildly economically unequal society that's not made very democratic in many ways, we live in enough of a democracy that by and large people aren't worried about getting arrested. What are they worried about? They're worried about getting fired. Why are they worried about getting fired? Because the majority of Americans work in at-will employment situations in non-unionized workplaces where the boss can fire them at any time with no recourse and no due process. If you agree that this is a problem, right, and if you don't agree with that, I don't take you seriously on free speech. If you agree that that's the problem, what's the solution? Well, every member of every, you know, every worker in every workplace in the United States should be a member of a union. And so here, th- to this point, perfect. No notes. And and he's exactly right. Like I, like I said, the free speech folks, they want to stir all this up about woke mobs or whatever, and they want to pretend that the main free speech fight in this country is on Twitter, when it is clearly not. It's in the workplace. And if you don't support workers organizing, if you don't uh, support unions, you cannot be a serious defender of free speech. I was I literally just had two or three conversations in the last week about people being interested in organizing, but being fearful of it for fear of professional repercussions and people who have uh, suffered professional repercussions for organizing. This is the free speech fight in this country. People are looking at their job situations and being unsatisfied with them, but being worried that they will lose their primary source of income if they speak out. 
Right. And and yet you don't hear these people. You don't hear people like Tim Pool talk about the issue of at-will employment. You don't hear Jordan Peterson crying on YouTube about how people were fired at dozens, dozens of baristas at Starbucks have been fired over the course of this campaign. And Jordan Peterson has shed not a tear about it, even though he is he is constantly wailing, rocking himself to sleep back and forth in a fetal position because he's being suspended on Twitter. But he is shedding no tears for the baristas at Starbucks who are being fired, who are being fired, losing their primary source of income, losing the source of income that feeds their children, puts food on their table, pays for their rent, pays for their school, pays for their utilities and their groceries. He doesn't care about that, even though he is supposed to be the preeminent free speech warrior. Right. And these are exact same people who are going after education employees Mm -hmm. with this new Red Scare bullshit, searching for CRT or LGBTQ friendly curriculum. Uh, And, you know, we've covered that on the show, but it's it's just worth repeating that these are the exact same people who cry about free speech on one day uh, when it comes to themselves and, you know, being able to say bigotry online. Yeah. but are the exact same people targeting educators who have the audacity to, I don't know, believe in inclusion, uh, or any kind of worker who dares speak up against unjust working conditions or attempts to organize? Right. It's just it's total bullshit. Right, right. Uh, but here's where we get to to the the minor issue that I have with with what he said. Let's play this next clip, Adam. If you agree that that's the problem, what's the solution? Well, every member of every, you know, every worker in every workplace in the United States should be a member of a union because when you're a member of a union, you actually have due process. You actually have an organization that will represent you when you're accused of wrongdoing the same way that a lawyer will represent you when you are accused of wrongdoing in the criminal justice system. Have you ever been in a union? So people aren't going to be afraid of getting arbitrarily fired. Now, I think, I, I think Adam, you can probably see where, where I'm going with this. Uh, you know, on, on the one hand, unfortunately, I think this is how many unions operate, and I think, Adam, you've got a really good experience that speaks to that. Right. A sort of service unionism. You pay your dues, you get a lawyer, or in uh, this case, a union steward or a uniserve director for education unions. And it is it is how many members experience their union, uh, and it is even how some unions uh, specifically want to pitch themselves, like insurance. Right. You get in trouble, give us a call. Yeah. But this is obfuscating and disempowering. This this advocacy for unions, this definition of unionism is obfuscating and disempowering. It is obfuscating because even in situations where unions function in this way, in in situations where unions function in an insurance or lawyer defense type model, it does not explain why they are able to provide the services that they do, which is the members. Who are the union, right? You have an at-will job and bring in some outside third, part, third party with no basis in the workplace and, and try to have them represent you in, in disciplinary hear, hearings. What's going to happen? You're going to get laughed out of the shop, right? Because there is no power there. There's no power there where you don't have a union. The only reason that you are able to have representation or service in this way comes from a union contract, which you will only get 
good articles and provisions in there from power on the shop floor, from having a strong membership base that the boss, or in the case of teachers, the politicians are scared of. Right? It doesn't come, it, it's not, it's not a, it, 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 that's not, the power does not come from having a public defense type Uniserve director or a union steward. That's not where the power comes from. The power comes from the membership, the strong majority of workers or or at least a strong minority or plurality of workers being in the same organization to such an extent that the boss or the politician is fearful of production being slowed or stopped by virtue of them not meeting their demands. Right. I mean, and in the only way there's resources to even hire these lawyers or, or other advocates mm-hmm. is by coming together and right. pooling the resources, right? Because individual workers... Even if it were a situation where you could theoretically get your own attorney uh, to represent you. Right. You know, which, again, is few and far between considering at-will employment is is the standard. Mm-hmm. But even in those situations, how many rank-and-file workers can it, can afford right. to go out and get their own attorney every time something happens at work? How it's, many rank-and-file workers would even know where to go? Right. And then how many attorneys out there... <laughs> can even do that kind of right. work and would be willing to do that kind of work. So, yeah, it, it does kind of it mystifies the right. whole experience. It mystifies it and it's disempowering because it posits that the power is not in the hands of the members to shape their union or their con- or the conditions of their employment, but rather that the conditions of their employment and the way that their union functions are set and they pay some third party, the union, to get the best out of those working conditions as possible, and that's and that's disempowering because it, it, it's because if you think that the power is not in your hands, in your coworkers' hands, you know, I mean, it's just it, it's disempowering and it's not it's not true. So, you know, I mean, there's, you know, I understand Ben has. It, the the heart's in the right place, but but I do think it's worth pointing that out that that that's not where the power comes from, and that is not where um you know and, and that's not an empowering message to give to union members or potential union members who are um who are thinking about who are dissatisfied with their working conditions and thinking about organizing. You know the the model that Ben is putting forward here is just is it is um. It's better than nothing, uh, but you know, yeah, and obfuscating and, and, and disempowering. Yeah, and we had uh, uh, Rai Rai had a comment in the chat that you know this that Ben probably wouldn't disagree with anything we're saying, uh, and you know he was tailoring this argument for his audience full of right wing libertarian legal nerds, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which yeah, absolutely uh, appreciate those comments because you're exactly enough, yeah. right. Um, I think that's what he was trying to do, uh, but I think this is an example of of sometimes the way we talk about unions. Uh, and ways unions talk about mm-hmm. themselves that does not get at the heart of the matter and, right. and can really uh, – in my experience, what I saw is that it it facilitated this sort of apathy and mm. service model in third-party kind of behavior. Right. Uh, 
you know, because when the union would talk about themselves in that way, well, then the members started to talk about it in that way. And and they start believing that's how it operates. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so that's where you have a situation where, you know, you can have the majority of your membership view it as an insurance policy or something right. akin to an insurance policy. And that's not healthy for no. organizing. Uh, and that's not healthy for the power dynamics in your workplace. Um, because at a certain point... Iron- I mean, ironically enough, if you have a majority of people legitimately viewing it as an insurance policy, it will be a less effective insurance policy. <laughs> right, because, you know, yeah, the extent to which uh, the organization, the union can actually help and defend and you know, win on behalf of individual members with individual grievances or, or uh, you know, terminations or what have you, uh, is a reflection of that power. Um, and the more you get down that road of treating it as a third-party insurance agency, the weaker the laws are going to be, the weaker your contracts are going to be, uh, the weaker your mobilization is going to be when things don't turn out well. Exactly, exactly. Um, but of course, Ben hits much closer to the truth than Tim Pool does. So. <laughs> that probably if, wasn't hard. Um, uh, let's hear him talk about unions. Oh, God, okay. Have <laughs> you ever been in a union? Just side question. Yeah. Which one? When? Um, I was in a couple. I've been in the... Uh, Which I've one? Been the U- I've been in the UFCW and, uh, when I was uh, working at Meyer in Michigan. Um, and uh, accepted. Uh, I didn't believe you. I, I, I couldn't imagine, based on what you'd said, that'd been true. Because I've been in two unions. I was in the transport workers union, and I worked at a, a, a grocery store as well, which also had a grocery workers union. And they were so corrupt that I was like, the statement you made is just like, a, a, like your perspective I can respect. That's coming from you, but it's like a blanket subjective perspective. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, we can take bets in the chat about how many meetings Tim Pool went to uh at the two unions that he was a part of. <laughs> um, and, you know... Yeah, and really, what corruption did you see? Right. I, I'm, or is that just some shit you're saying? Yeah. Uh, because I'm, I, I, I'm very skeptical that he witnessed anything corrupt. And that's not to say that corruption doesn't exist. It's out there, and we, we're very, you know, honest on this show about that. We're, we're not uncritical of labor institutions as institutions mm-hmm. that are run by human beings that are fallible and uh, are subject to the same kind of atrophy and corruptibility that happens in institutions that exist for a while. It's reality, but uh, that's also a right-wing trope that right. folks uh, just throw out there without any sort of context or without any actual backing behind it. Right, right. And, and you know, the... It's just totally at odds with the experience of the majority of union members, and he is using his experience, even if we stipulate that maybe maybe his union was not as effective as it could be, and even if we stipulate that there may be... Who knows? Maybe there was some some corruption and some taking money and, and putting it in the officers' pockets. You know, I don't know. I mean, these things happen. Who knows? But even in those situations... His workplace is going to be better than not having that union. And, oh, absolutely! Uh, you know, it, it's just and so the idea that he's using that, even if we stipulate his experience, the idea that he's using that experience to say that, oh, I can't believe you would describe unions in this way as a positive thing. 
you know, not taking the issues that we did with it, but Tim was saying that uh, the idea that you would paint unions as a positive thing is crazy to me because of my individual experience. Instead of looking at literally any statistics that you can find on unions where union members make more money, they have better health care, they have retirement, which uh, many, many non-union members do not. They have due process, like Ben was saying, even if it's not for exactly the reason that Ben was saying. And, and I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on. That. He did not. Exactly. You know, he did not actually address the issue being discussed by Ben, the free speech issue in the workplace, where you can be fired for any reason, for no reason, and your best hope of actually protecting against that is coming together with your coworkers, forming a union or strengthening your union mm-hmm. to get those due process protections or just cause protections. Right. Tim doesn't mention that. Right. Uh, so and, where and do you stand of, on at-will employment, exactly. you know, Mr. Right-Winger? And speaking of, of just cause and at-will employment, Joe Marshall says in the Facebook chat that a good attorney will not take cases like that because the attorney will explain that the employee, uh, the at-will law. Uh, yes, <laughs> so, I have been in meetings <laughs> with union members and attorneys uh, where essentially that was the meeting. Uh, yeah, like, you, know, uh, we, we you got, are out of luck, buddy. Right. We, we, <laughs> hey, you're a long-time dues-paying member. You want to see a lawyer? Okay, we'll get you into a lawyer. And we sit down, and the lawyer calmly explains, you don't have a case. Here's why you don't have a case. Right. Now, you know, the challenge there is to say, what next? Um, unfortunately, the business union model typically is, well, okay, case closed. Go home, go away. See you later. Call us next time. Mm -hmm. But there is an alternative, which is to say, okay, we can't fix this in the courts. Is there another way? Right. Could we organize around this? Are there other workers who are experiencing the same issue that brought Mm -hmm. you to this office today? You know, so that's 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 the challenge and that's the different ways of looking at it. Right, right. And and Martha and Mel Sutton in the chat say that, uh, you know, on that point, a union is only as strong as its weakest member. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, uh, you have a lot more engaged membership. Uh, the more engaged your membership is, the more strong it's going to be. Uh, so, you know, Ben had a response to this, and they ha- kind of have a back and forth. And let's play that uh, back and forth between Tim and Ben. However corrupt that union might have been that you were part of, Two of them. if you had been... Uh, accused of an infraction subject to disciplinary disciplinary process, then you would have had the option of having them represent you in that process. That Wrong. Is, okay. Bro. So I, I don't want to get into an argument about unions other than to say, like, your subjective perspective... It's, it's not subjective. It's a fact that the effect of unions is to give you due process. And sometimes they don't fired. because humans are fallible. But I digress. Okay, but you can say the same thing about having trial by jury that, like, somehow it's not a good due process. So so the issue is... Still a due process. And and I think that, that Ben pushes back I mean, exactly in, in exactly the same way I do, because Tim is, even if we stipulate that he had bad experiences, he is using that... To negate the fact, to to negate the total the the idea of unions in totality and the effect that they do have on working people and the job security that they have. I mean, he just it, it's bizarre the arguments that he's making. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, do you want to be able to lose your job for any reason or no reason without mm-hmm. recourse? Right. 
Is that acceptable to you or not? Right. Uh, I mean, that's a question that people have to ask themselves. Uh, and there are situations where you're in a workplace and perhaps uh, the union that is there is a little lackluster in mm-hmm. need of improvement. Maybe there are issues. Maybe you need a new president. Whatever the issue may be, that's something to wrestle with. But at the end of the day, do you think it's acceptable that your boss can fire you and take away your livelihood for no reason or any reason without you having any recourse? Right. And the only way to or the best way to um, make it a reality that your boss does not have that kind of power is to form a union. And, and you know, the uh, oh, there was something there was I, I had something and then I lost it. The bit about. Um, oh, shoot. Well, sorry to get you off track there, but I mean, to me, that that really is the bottom line question. And I feel like if you were to talk to workers on the street, workers in any industry, I I don't think it's a a big guess here to say that most workers would not be okay with that. Most workers aren't okay with that. Most workers Mm -hmm. have to be okay with it to a degree. They have to put up with it because that's the situation. That's the reality for most workers in this country. Uh, But I don't believe that most workers in this country want it to be that way. Right, right. Who would? Right. Yeah, exactly. And and so, you know, I think most people feel like, hey, if I come in and I really screw up and I've mm-hmm. done something that deserves no more chances, then by all means, do what you've got to do. Most people have enough common sense to recognize that. Like, hey, I was late every day. Then you caught me stealing. OK, well, you know, do what you got to do. But most people also recognize that they come in, they try to do a good job. Uh Sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes they're falsely accused. Sometimes they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and mm-hmm. things can happen. Sometimes they get a jerk supervisor who has it out for them. You know, those are just realities that people experience, you know, five right. days a week or more. Right. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. It's uh, uh, It is a bizarre... I mean, it, it, it is bizarre to dismiss the reality that unions the, – the, the reality of unions and the reality that union members experience um, because of his subjective experience. You know, he's talking about – he's talking – oh, what I was going to say was that the, the what, what Ben was saying is so important that it has actually been enshrined into law that unions have a duty to represent you fairly. And if unions do not represent you fairly, if you are disciplined on the job uh, and, you know, this is a kind of this is an individual response and, and, you know, but it's more than people in non-union workplaces have. If you if you are disciplined on the job and your union legitimately does not represent you fairly or at all and you deserved representation, you can file a failure to represent against them, an unfair labor practice with the NLRB, and make them represent you. Like, it's illegal for them not to represent you. Right. I think that is that is important to note. And what that means is not that they have a responsibility to do what you want them to do. Right. You know, here's an example from my experience. Every year, many non-tenured teachers would get the pink slip at the end of the school year. They're non-tenured. They're at will. The school district was fully within their rights to pink slip them on the last day of school, and it was up to them whether they wanted to hire them back or not. 
you know, every year that meant a lot of teachers who were very upset, justifiably so. Uh, and sometimes they would ask for, hey, I want a lawyer. I want to do this. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I had to explain, well, here's what the law says. Now, that's not to say we can't, you know, lobby your principal to bring you back, we, you know, or lobby the school board to bring you back. Or doesn't mean there's nothing. But legally, no, you can't. You know, we're not we, we're not in a situation where we could file a lawsuit to get you back into your job as a non-tenured, you know, at-will employee. Right. And so that's that's what it boils down to is what is the situation? What could the union conceivably do? And did they actually, in good faith, execute that? Right. Right. Sometimes in good faith, telling you you don't have a case is the mm-hmm. only thing they can do for right. you. Right. Right. Uh, before we get to the last story, just want to plug the phone number one more time. If you all want to call in, feel free. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. The last, phone no- or the last um, topic that I wanted to talk about was Rubio's paid leave policy that he put out there. Oh, good grief. Uh, have you have you seen it, Adam? Have you read into it? Um, I know a little bit about it. I guess I'm about to find out more. But what I've Whew. seen is... Um, quite disturbing wow. and so I, I see Rubio is one of the main Republicans kind of posturing around mm-hmm. certain um, worker issues quote unquote um, right and trying to position themselves a little bit more in the populist direction because of course especially since Trump Republicans have been called populist by a lot of people bizarrely. they sometimes call themselves that yeah uh, which yeah it is bizarre because it's not at all <laughs> reflective, reflective of, of their ideology or their <laughs> policy prescriptions right uh, Rubio seems to be one who's trying to kind of um, trying to back it up a little bit more yeah, than the others yeah but uh, when you when you read between the lines, you see it's just new ways to screw you. Exactly. So yeah, like like you said, Adam, right wingers have been on a kick recently, trying to make us believe that they are the party of working people, and so far, remarkably little more than you know anti woke capitalist rhetoric has been offered in support of this effort at rebranding. You know, the, the most that they'll do is, uh, you know, I think Marco Rubio came out in support of the Bessemer Amazon campaign. Uh, unionization campaign because Amazon is too woke, uh, which is absolutely nowhere on the list of the concerns of the employees that were unionizing. They could not care less about that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, if if your opposition to a company is because they dare make their employees like take a workshop that says don't use the N-word at work, yeah. and, and that's kind of your beef with them, but Marco Rubio has so far been basically the only one to try to attempt to put forward any legislation at all. His first attempt a few months ago was to legalize company unions. We talked about that, and you can go watch our video on it. Uh, not good, not pro-worker. Um, but he's back with something else now. The Providing for Life Act which is meant to bolster the Republicans' pro-family standing as Roe is overturned and their colleagues in state legislatures are trying to make 10-year-old girls carry their uncle's rape pregnancies to term. The Providing for Life Act does two things. Enable paid parental leave and expand the child tax credit. 
And now, at first blush, this sounds pretty good. Uh, it doesn't sound bad. Um, I think that we should enable paid parental leave, and I think also that we should expand the child tax credit. I mean, this is these are both good things. Sure, sure. Um, but Matt Brunig did an analysis of the legislation and its likely effects, and folks, it is decidedly not good. It is, it is decidedly not good. Let's first take a look at the child tax credit bit from Brunig's paper in the People's Policy Project. Unlike the proposed Biden CTC or the child benefit proposed by members Tlaib and Jones, the Rubio child tax credit is specifically designed to exclude poor families from the full child tax credit benefit and to ensure that the poorest families receive nothing at all from the program. Rubio accomplishes this by making his child tax credit phased, phase in based on family income, meaning that the more money you earn, the more child tax credit benefits you receive up to a certain point. Because of this phase in, new parents earning less than $29,412 per year are not eligible for the full $4,500 benefit, and new parents with no earnings are eligible for absolutely nothing. So the more you need it, the less you get. Exactly. That's kind of a Republican economic policy in a nutshell, isn't it? That is amazing. (laughs) I mean, wow. Parents who earn nothing, zero dollars per year, get the least amount possible, which is zero from this policy. Absolutely insane. But what about okay? Let's 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 go on to the next policy. What about paid parental leave? Surely he can't. I mean, surely the worst thing that he can do is just make the paid leave low, right? I mean, surely he can't do something crazy with. Surely there's not a way to actually make it bad. Surely it could just be better, but it's still a step in the right direction. Surely this would not actually be a negative impact on working families. Well. From Matt Brunig's analysis, quote, Rubio's parental leave program provides three months of leave benefits for new parents with the catch that any parent that claims them will have to undergo a reduction in their Social Security old age benefits to offset what they received for parental leave. Specifically, the Rubio bill states that a parental leave beneficiary will, at retirement, be required to choose between paying those benefits back by having their Social Security check docked for 60 months or or paying those benefits back by having every Social Security benefit check docked until they die. Rubio's parental leave policy parental leave program excludes from eligibility anyone who has worked for less than 2 years. Parents who are still in education or just joined the workforce, which also described many of the people who have abortions, which is the which is the thing that Rubio is ostensibly trying to get at, let's remember. Parents who are still in education or just joined the workforce, which describes many people who have abortions, will get absolutely no money from this program. And finally, in Rubio's bill... When somebody dies before reaching old age, all of the parental benefits they received during their life are deemed overpayments, and the Social Security Administration makes their estate pay them back. 
So when a mom or dad tragically dies a few years after having their third kid, the surviving spouse under Rubio's bill will have to send a big, fat check to the Social Security Administration. That's family values for you, folks. That's... So, so yeah, if you're lucky enough to make enough money to qualify for it, and you've been in the workforce long enough to qualify for it, they'll be so generous as to allow you to borrow from your own Social Security benefits so you can choose now to have a little bit of leave uh, in exchange for suffering in your retirement. <laughs> Hoping and potentially you hoping you live that long, and if not, because otherwise your family's screwed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. I mean, this honestly, I, I'm not sure that this would be this. this I don't might think actually it, be worse than just what we have now, which is nothing. Which is amazing. How can you make it worse than having nothing? That's just astounding. Absolutely wild. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. I, I mean, talk about a death tax, you know. Right, they, yeah. They, I mean, they, they're, they're always, you know, one of their things is like, oh, it's so terrible that somebody who has a $20 million estate might have to pay an estate tax on the 20 millionth and first dollar. You know, oh, no. Oh, a death tax. But, I mean, Adam Smith, the, you know, founding father of, of capitalist theory himself was on board with taxing inheritance. But for them... It's a bridge too far. No worries, though. Except about taking, unless it's taking, a working, right. unless it's a working family, in which case they are more than happy to steal money from your estate because you had the gall to want to be with your child for its first three months of existence so that you can raise it. Because you didn't have a choice on whether you were going to have that child or not. <laughs> crazy! Ooh. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, that is one of the most frustrating things about uh, this whole framing of Republicans as populists or trying to reclaim working people. Um, it is so not true. And, and I, I think it's up to all of us to make sure we we don't let anyone get fooled by that. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't think they're really all that serious about it because why they don't have to be. Right. They have a winning formula. Uh, they have a base of the middle class of small business owners and, and professionals, and they can supplement that with just enough older white workers who are, you know, along with a fraction, a small fraction of Hispanic and other races. But generally, you know, it's it's a middle class base with a small number of, of white workers who are older and who are, you know, buying into the bigotry, all funded by oligarchs. They they don't have any need for a populist movement, um, nor would they want one, but they're going to continue this framing, and unfortunately, liberal media will continually allow them to do that. Adam, I think we got a caller on the line. Why don't we Do pull we? them in? Okay. Let's see if I can uh, make that happen. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? It's uh, Mel Sutton. I was calling you uh, to touch on a couple of subjects you've been talking about. 
Oh yeah, Mel. Mel is uh you are the uh not the president of the West Alabama Labor Council, but um one of the officers, right? I'm a re- region vice president and sit on the West Alabama Labor Council with uh, James Crowder and that group. Yes, yes, love those folks. Yeah, well, well thanks for calling in. Joe Marshall and I are friends, and uh, uh, we critique the show every week whenever we listen in. I didn't get to listen last because <laughs> out on vacation, but uh, every, uh, y- y'all get a critique. You didn't know it, but you did. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we, we always discuss what y'all talk about on the show and the issues that's going on. Now, I just wanted to make a comment on a couple of things. If Adam is listening, you know, I posted the thing, the thing about the uh, uh, built for the people. You you were giving out union density information in an update and reporting on union density, and you you posed a question to yourself as to why the Shoals area had a higher rating or a higher density than a lot of places. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the TVA, the inception of the TVA. And in the Built for the People, it tells the story of how, when the TVA was was created, that they had no way of training these people. So they brought in all the trades locals because they were going to need massive amounts of people and workers of all kinds of trades. So the government, the TVA, brought the, the trades locals in to train all these employees. And it just stuck. And stayed. And I have seen. Um, I, I went back and watched um, "Built for the People" that uh, um, that documentary that you recommended. And, and just for folks um, f- for folks listening on the stream, you'll be able to hear this when when it's clipped. Uh, ben is trying to work on um, getting getting the sound to actually go on the air. But what? Uh, but we've got Mel Sutton on the line here, and he is answering a question that we posed about why the Muscle Shoals union density is so high compared to the rest of the state and compared to the rest of the South. And he said that it was because of the TVA. They brought in a lot of local union or or a lot of union locals into the area and it just kind of stuck. And I heard uh, I did watch Built for the People um, and I I really enjoyed it or I watched at least half of it. And and did that talk about some of the union uh, that talked about some of the union involvement in the TVA, right? Yes, yes, it touched on, you know, the creation of the TVA. And, well, it tells the entire story of the Tennessee Valley. But, you know, you know, I mean, if they want to watch it, it's a really good documentary. And you mm-hmm. need to watch the long version, too. On YouTube, you'll get a about an hour version, and there's one that's almost two hours. It tells the entire story. Oh, wow. Where is the one that's two hours? Is, is that on YouTube as well? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's on YouTube. You have to look at the time down at the bottom right corner, you know, the length. But it, it tells the story of, of the tragedy of the Tennessee Valley and how bad it was before the TVA. And, uh, but the other, but, you know, I, I don't want to take up y'all's time. This is going to, I think, address, and Joe and myself, uh, during our conversation, have a discussion about training and training union officers and this goes I don't want to drag this out but I'm, I'm in a special situation I moved to Alabama in 89 and this sort of tells the story of the change of politics in the state mm-hmm. 
I watched I watched as the the Democratic Party being the so-called Democratic Party being the the party of dominance in the state to being a minority down through time mm-hmm. and had, and had the special opportunity of being an area vice president in which y'all I guess I was a souped up souped up shop steward you know but you know you're lucky in these plants and most union representatives if you got a high school education at best right right now how do you learn how do you learn to represent people hmm. how do you learn to become a quasi attorney and represent the contract and represent the employees you know and I'd like and, and if Joe and, and you can really touch on this subject with Joe there was an organization that was attached to the University of Alabama at Birmingham called CLEAR, the acronym CLEAR, C-L-E-A-R. It was a Center for Labor Education and Research. Mm-hmm. But it slowly but surely, as the, as the politics in Alabama changed, the funding for it went away. And it was a excellent, and excellent. It did union training up to and including arbitration training, steward training, uh, uh, the the uh, the uh, cost of the local, how you know how the the financial officers training. I mean, it, they did it all, and, awesome. and had a super super safety course there too. But as as politics changed, the funding went away. But it. it the Center for, Labor, Center for Labor Education and Research would be a real good story. And oh, by the way, Adam, another thing that they, I want to think they put it out quarterly, but they put out a newsletter. Ooh. And in every newsletter, they would do Alabama labor history. Hmm. And it was, I mean, oh, it was cool. I mean, they. Well, you're hooking me up today with some stuff to, to research then. I said you're you're hooking me up today with some topics to research because that sounds really really interesting. Um, I, I definitely want to find those newsletters. Like I, you know, to to back up to what I said, I came into labor uh, as an interested member, uh, going and attending union meetings. The the folks that were there saw my interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, approached me about being a steward and then uh, uh, being an area vice president and proudly served for a long time and served with Joe Marshall, one of the finest officers that you'll ever want to sit down on an executive board with. I mean, and uh, uh, we've gone through all those things that you touched on today, the failure to represent. We had, we had to defend ourselves with our own union with charges that were filed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's too, too long a story to tell and keep take up your airtime, but no, uh, I, I really do believe if you'll do the research and talk to Joe, that you'll find that that you know that there's a need, there is a dire need because now the Center for Labor, Center for Labor Education and Research is gone, mm-hmm. and the local unions don't have any resources other than their internationals if they put on training, region right, training. Right. Oh, and oh by the way, uh, our region uh, when we were paced before we were steel workers. And when we were steel workers, when we merged with steel workers, PACE was our old acronym uh, that we used before we merged with steel workers. They reached out to the Center for Labor, Center for Labor Education and Research when we did region trainings, when we mm-hmm. would send stewards and, and officers to uh, di- different different locations. You know, for 
we'd spend the better part of a week going to classes. And, right, right. Uh, then it was a lot of it was taught by the professors. And oh, by the way, they were professors. They wasn't just any run-of-the-mill guy doing this thing. And they were some of the most the brightest individuals you would want to deal with. Right, and there's there's definitely. Oh no no no! I mean we don't we don't have any other stories to uh, uh, to talk about. So I'm I'm happy to happy to keep talking to you. I, I enjoy this kind of stuff, and, and and I think that there is definitely a need for this kind of tr- the training of officers in the particularities of contract enforcement and the law, and also in how to use contract enforcement to organize and, and build your union and build enthusiasm in your union. Because a lot of you know I so much is just. There's an empty seat, and anybody can take it that wants to, and you're thrown to the wolves, and you're thrown right into, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, and that's how that's how I've come into, right. you know, I, I'm now assistant vice president of my local, and I'm secretary treasurer of the labor council, and you get very little training, <laughs> you get not certainly not enough, and I certainly don't get a week of training with other officers who are going to be doing the same thing in other unions. Uh, the same thing that I'm doing. I mean, there is a huge dearth of this kind of stuff, and it's really just we have to. A lot of times, it seems like we've got to recreate the wheel every single you know every single new person that that gets into a position. I, ideally, ideally, you, you you get interested folks who attends meetings, and they're you know they're bright enough to be shop stewards to represent folks, but they they have no clue as mm-hmm. to what they can and cannot do. Right, right. And you you got to be you have to be real careful in the law to keep your local and yourself out of trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, right. and I was fortunate. I was fortunate enough to be around. Uh, Joe, uh, Blair McCreelis, uh, and a, and a, a, a number of others that were versed in labor law and educated by the union. And they were educated by guys that knew what you could and could not do and were taught. Right, and right. was fortunate enough to attend the training classes at Clear. And, oh, and we, we kept reams of information at our union hall. Mm-hmm. And would use them for reference, you know, on cases, you know, and you know, uh, I can I can remember well uh, the stories being told to me that our local had to take a case all the way to arbitration for a lady that didn't that was not a dues paying member mm-hmm. had to take it all the way, and she she didn't pay dues because. Oh. She number one, she had an grievance that was legitimate, mm-hmm. and once once you once you you know you hear the grievance and you got you got to give it its due, and if it's a legitimate grievance, it it's all. I mean, you know, this thing could go all the way to arbitration. It did, and our local did take her arbitration all the way. I mean, her her case all the way to arbitration, mm-hmm. and I mean things like that. I mean. Because if you if you run it out, run out there on the ragged edge and you don't know what you're doing, you can get yourself the grievance and the local in a lot of trouble. Yeah, you can do more harm than good if you right. just go out there half cocked and not prepared. Yeah, and and you're so right that you know we're we're all just everyday working class folks. We're not born right. with a law degree, and we are not born understanding law, labor law, and what makes a strong grievance. It's well, and the thing that the thing that really 
points to the the efficacy of this training is people like you and Joe, who if you talk to you and Joe, people like you and Joe, and you and Joe specifically for any amount of time, I mean, I, my understand, I do not, I don't believe that Joe has a college education, and I don't believe that that you do either. But there's not anybody that knows the law better than better than Joe, certainly. And and I, I my talking to you uh, today and before, it sounds like you've got a really good grasp on the law, at, at least as good as <laughs> as any lawyer has about labor law. And and you know, I know, I know that Joe is listening right now. I know mm-hmm. that he's listening. So I, I'm going to use an old adage that that we used uh, among ourselves. I'm going to blow his dress tail up. Okay, he's <laughs> got a high school education, but he is one of the most well read individuals, mm-hmm. and they study. He is a sponge when it comes to labor and labor law and labor issues. And he lives it and breathes it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, me and him both retired. Right. And, right. and you know, I, I'm on the West Alabama Labor Council because I still want to be involved in labor and uh, and labor issues and and the tragedy of, of the warrior met situation mm-hmm. and the tragedy of, of all, if there's any issue, mm-hmm. number of issues all over this country. And, uh, but, but no, I mean, and like I will, I'll let y'all guys go and, uh, but, I mean, do, do some research there, and if you find it uh, interesting enough to do it, you know. But do look for the long version of that TVA story, and it, it tells uh, it tells an interesting part about the atomic bomb project during World War II in one of the dams that was built. I'll have to look that up. I, I saw the hour version, but I'll have to look up the two-hour version. Is is it on YouTube as well? You need to, it's the, the, I mean, it might not be a complete hour. But uh, it's it's a real it's a real good documentary. And, but mm-hmm. you know, I just wanted to address that with Adam because he he, he I think he's into labor and labor history. So yes, <laughs> and, he, uh, and, and Joe. Well, Joe had mentioned letter. Joe had mentioned to me the Center for Labor Education and Research in Alabama, and and I think it sounds like that was kind of a national thing that Alabama adopted as well. And so um, I, I wonder what you think how you think would be best what do you think the options would be for replacing something like that i mean do you because it got state funding as well as union funding it was a joint project of the state of alabama if we could put something together i'm just i'm just shooting from the hip here now mm-hmm. i'll work out but if we could do something from the national afl cio and the state afl afl cio in combination and put together some kind of training program and reach out to folks like Joe Marshall, mm-hmm. who is educated, things like that, uh, to, to be resources, you know, mm-hmm. on a limited basis. Because these officers at these locals, at any number of locations, like I said, like I said before, you, you, you got a high school education at best. And right, right. You, you're, you know, you know, you, you probably got a history class and a civics class coming out of high school. Right. Which are taught by football coaches. <laughs> What's that? And what? Which are taught by football coaches. Who... A lot of the time, yeah. <laughs> and I'm you, you are correct. A lot of the times they are they are taught by the football coach just to have a, just to have a course to teach so they, so they can be a teacher. Mm. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but you're correct. But uh, you know, I, I think it would be a, a subject if we could put it together, or if y'all can put it together, and. Uh, and, and and maybe maybe try to research a replacement for it, so these locals would have a resource 
to get their young officers and young stewards and their young financial officers because that's another issue. Uh, the, the NLRB and all the international unions, you, you have to be real careful with the, with the locals' resources yeah, and yeah. how you spend them. You know, things like that. I mean, that's that's an entire other subject. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Mel, I appreciate the call, and I appreciate your listening. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I've got some homework to do now. and uh, But, yeah, I'm really I'm intrigued. I want to find out more about this clear at UAB and uh, because I think it, it, it speaks to a need that we have now that's not really being met. And um, I do know there's conversations happening with labor notes about mm-hmm. possibly doing a uh, southern focused labor notes training. But I think something more, you know, more permanent yeah. that could be an ongoing resource for unions across the state of Alabama to get that essential training, um, to get briefed on the laws, to be prepared so that they can execute their, their office or, or stewardship effectively i think that's that's huge so i yeah i appreciate you sharing this history and uh looking forward to maybe tracking down some of these old newsletters and things like that that's that's right up my alley sure i'm sure they're still out there joe joe may have a few laid back Mm. as a resource i don't know i didn't save mine i should have but i saved i saved all my i saved all well in a point i'll make a point and and this is in training uh note keeping they'll they'll tell you to start i mean if you if you share a breath with the company and another individual and yourself just yourself if you meet with them on the issue mm-hmm. uh, you better keep notes and, right. and they better be accurate because at some point in the future you may have to defend yourself with those notes yeah absolutely that's that was like the number one thing i always told my members document 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 you have a little notebook a little notepad whatever you want however you want to do it you better take notes anytime you're you're meeting with your supervisor because uh, they tend to get selective amnesia about that sometimes. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, things things <laughs> tend to fall off the corners of desk and things like that. Don't they? <laughs> All right, hey, hey guys, hey guys, I'm not going to take up any more of your time, to, and I, I appreciate your show and uh, what y'all do. Hey, thanks, Mel, thanks. Have a good one. Yeah, man. That's a great way to that's a great way to end the show. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we uh, had a good one today, had a lot of stuff, um, and I enjoyed Mel. Lo- love uh, love getting that interaction from the audience. Feel free to, um, uh, listeners, feel free to call in more liberally. We uh, love to see that, love to hear it. And, um, yeah, glad folks are listening. So uh, thanks for listening to the show, everybody. Um, Don't forget, check out Love Huntsville, Huntsville Bail Fund. Uh, Again, that that camp eviction is slated for July 15th. That's uh, Friday. Uh, The Legal Observer training is this afternoon at 3 o'clock. If you can log in online, get get a little bit of training. Uh, That's useful. Even if you can't get involved around the eviction efforts, uh, there's always a need for legal observers at big protest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, Lord, if if you're at all familiar with how Huntsville Police responds to big protests, uh, it's it's definitely a big need in the community. So, yeah, we tried to spotlight some some local stuff today. Uh, I hope that was not too boring for those of you who are uh, outside of North Alabama. 
but yeah, we really appreciate everybody wherever you are, however you tune in. We we really appreciate it. Yep, you can uh, support the program if you appreciate the work on our website or by our hat at tvlr.fm. With that, we'll see you next week. <laughs>